Well, friends, take your Bibles now, if you will. Turn over to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, is where we'll pick up today. Uh, if you're not, if you're here with us and don't own a copy of the Bible, just look right in front of you. You should see a little black uh, hardback copy that's there for you. Not just to listen this morning, though it'll be super helpful for you to have it open in front of you for the next little bit, but, but we'd also love for you to take it with you. That's our gift to you. You're gonna, you'll find uh, what we'll look at this morning on page 212 of those little Bibles that should hopefully be right there in front of you. While you're turning over there, let me ask you a question. What do you think is the most distinctive thing about us as humans compared to other creatures out there in the world? You know, compared to black bears and hound dogs and earthworms and lightning bugs. As a species, what makes us unique? According to one popular science website, I read that we're unique because, quote, our chief mode of locution is walking fully upright. This way of moving frees our hands up for using tools. And they're onto something. That is true. Humans don't just build nests. We design and then build skyscrapers. You looked across the river from this point lately? Crane, 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 crane. How could we operate all those cranes if our chief mode of locution was slithering around on the ground or flapping around in the air or crawling around wherever we had to go? It sure does help that we walk upright. Surely we can do better than that, though. One infamous French philosopher came up with another explanation. Jean-Jacques Rousseau said what makes us unique is that we, we don't operate on instinct like all the other animals do. We make choices. We get to decide who we want to be. We get to decide what we want to do. In other words, what makes us human is that we can do what's right in our own eyes. And clearly, he was onto something too. Like we do have that power. We do have agency that's unique among other things that are part of the world. I'm convinced, though, that there's an even more important difference between we humans and the other species that we share our planet with. The, the, the two I've mentioned already are important. They're part of the package. But I think even more fundamentally, at an even more foundational level, what sets us apart is our ability to communicate. And through communication to know one another more deeply than any other species could. I mean, other species communicate, and they do have relationships. I mean, I'm, for one, I'm amazed by dolphins. Have you ever paid attention to how dolphins communicate? Like, just go Google it. Watch one of the umpteen thousand documentaries that you can find out there. They make these little squeaking noises that can, can, can be heard all over the place under the water. And they, they work together, and they, they're friends with one another, and they're super friendly and collaborative. Dolphins are amazing. And, of course, they communicate. But come on. Humans write novels. Humans write love songs. Humans write op-eds expressing their opinions. Humans write Facebook posts projecting opinions whether you want them to be there or not. Humans talk on the phone. Humans talk to therapists. Humans talk to neighbors across the fence. We humans don't just communicate our plans for mutual defense 
or where we're going to find a reliable food source. We put words to our hopes and to our dreams. We put words to our fears, to our desires. We, we just can't help labeling things with words. And, and we can understand each other's words too. That's unique. And the Bible says that is absolutely intentional. It is a fundamental part of what it is to be human. Because God made us to know and be known. Not just to know and be known by one another, but to know and to be known by him. The most fundamental thing that separates humans from other species in this world is God's decision to make a creature that could know him through his word to us. Which leaves just one question for us. Do we want to know him? He's given us exactly the tools we would need to hear from him. He's spoken exactly what he wants us to hear. Do we want to listen? Do we want to accept what he says precisely because he's the one saying it? I want you to keep those questions in mind as we enter our story this morning from 1 Samuel. Because this story presents us with a truth that you'll find all over the Bible. It's this. The dividing line between those who know God and those who don't is the line between ignoring his word or embracing it. This morning, we are, uh, we're going to be introduced to the character from whom this book gets its name, Samuel. He was born in the text that we looked at last week, but, but this week we start to see him growing, developing, and begin to relate directly to God. In other words, this week we see him grow into the leader that Israel needs in a terrible time in the nation's life. In fact, what makes Samuel pop out on the page in this story is the stark contrast between Samuel and how he responds to the word of the Lord and the other leaders that Israel was stuck with at this time and how they responded to the word of the Lord. This story unfolds in four steps I want to take with you. First, looking at what the leaders before Samuel were like and how they received the word of the Lord and then shifting to Samuel and what he is like how he receives the word of the Lord. And I want to begin by just reading the first scene in our story. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read, picking up in chapter 2, verse 12. And I'm going to read just through verse 17 for now. This is the word of the Lord. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The customs of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give me meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, 
Then take as much as you wish, he would say. No, you must give it now. And if not, I'll take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. This is God's word. You may be seated. Step number one in our story this morning, the abuses of Eli's sons. The abuses of Eli's sons. If the first chapter of 1 Samuel took us into the inner world of one godly woman praying desperately for a son, this second chapter takes us back up and out into the life of Israel at large during the time of the judges, and it's ugly out there. Maybe you'll remember from a couple weeks ago when we surveyed that book, you may remember how, how the book itself sums up The situation in Israel during a time when Israel had no king. The same statement made repeatedly at the end of that book. There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One Old Testament scholar put it like this. About the opening here to 1 Samuel. It's hard to imagine a worse situation than the end of the narrative of Judges. But this is it. This is it. Because here in 1 Samuel 2, what we see is that the godlessness and the corruption and the abuses of power that were so typical all through Israel in this time with no king, all of that had made it into the tabernacle too. The sons of Eli were priests who led the people in worship at the tabernacle in Shiloh. But the author tells us these priests were worthless men. And you might be thinking, why? Why are they worthless? What's wrong with them? The author quickly shows us that what he means is that they were as lost in sin, as lost in their rebellion, as the people that they were supposed to lead out of that lostness. Israel, time and again, we were told, forgot God. That was the message of Judges. What about Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons? Surely the priests remembered. And verse 12 tells us, no, they, these priests, they did not know the Lord. In Israel, when everybody forgot about God, everybody just did whatever they wanted to do. Whatever was right in their own eyes. That was the message of judges. And we're thinking, surely not the tabernacle though. Not in God's own house. Not among those people set apart. The ones who are supposed to represent the people before God. The ones whose job was to help the people know there is a God in heaven. That God takes us seriously here on earth. That is a God that we should want to know and to love and to obey. A God that we should fear. That was their whole job. Surely they don't do what's right in their own eyes. But they do. We see it first in the section we just read. Verse 13 tells us of this custom of the priests. When you hear custom, think practices they came up with in place of laws God had given. See, there were laws about just about everything to do with the tabernacle and how stuff was supposed to work there. And in Leviticus chapter 7, you can see a bunch of the ones that are, that are re- relevant to this scene that's here in 1 Samuel 2. 
God left nothing to chance. He gave him exactly the rules he wanted him to follow so that things went rightly in his house. It mattered to him. Instead of the laws, though, they're operating on customs, on what seemed right in their eyes. So there were sacrifices people would bring year after year. These sacrifices were a way of of saying, I know that I've sinned against you, God, but I want to know you anyway. And God saying, I know you've sinned against me. I want you to know me anyway. Bring the sacrifice and that will be part of my forgiveness of you. It will show sin is serious, but it will show I seriously love you anyway. So every year these people are bringing in their sacrifices, keeping this relationship going, those who still remembered to do it. And when they would come, some of the meat that they would bring would be eaten by the family. Some of the meat would be eaten by the priest because that was how that priest got his living. He lived and and worked all day in in the tabernacle. He couldn't go out and make money to buy meat, so he would eat from the sacrifices. That was appropriate. And in the best of the meat, the pieces that had the most fat on them, those went to the Lord. They were burned up as a way of saying, you matter most. Everything is yours. All I have comes from you. You are Lord. But Hophni and Phinehas had their own custom. Their custom was to send a a servant over to whoever was making the sacrifice. And while the meat was still boiling, they'd take this meat fork, jab it in, and pull out as much as they could get. Whatever comes out on the fork, that will be ours. That wasn't about an equitable way of doing things. That was about getting more than what Leviticus 7 said they should have. And and it gets worse than that. Verse 15 says, moreover, even worse, they decided they wanted raw meat so they could roast it for themselves to their taste. I mean, I prefer roasted meat to boiled, don't you? Wouldn't you rather grill your hot dog instead of boil it? I don't blame them. The problem is that that's not how God said it should be done. And, and, And what What's even worse, they wanted it raw so they could get the best pieces. It's so sad reading the, the response of the people when they would come and ask for that, for that raw meat. The, the people, verse 16, they know this is not okay. They've come bringing this sacrifice because it matters to them what God thinks of them. And so they're saying, no, 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 just, just let us give the fat first, please. You can have as much as you want. Let, let us do what God said to do. Let us give them the fat. We'll burn that up like God said. Then you can have it all. I don't need to eat, but, but God gets his. And they're saying, no, uh-uh. give it now or else. We'll take it by force. That's what the author means when he says that the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. I think another way to say that is they saw this offering as a waste of perfectly good fat. In other words, they didn't know the Lord. They didn't think he was really there to see. They didn't think this fat would be going anywhere, would be doing anything. It's wasted if you burn it to a God who isn't there. The Lord was not real to them. And if there's no Lord above all-seeing, all-knowing. Who ends up at the top of the food chain? Hophni and Phinehas, that's who. Men who pretend to represent God's power, but use it only for themselves. 
And in verse 22, we see how far this corruption goes. Look at what Hophni and Phinehas were doing at the entrance to God's holy place. They lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. The book of Judges closed with that book's ultimate example of how terrible things had gotten in Israel. The final example for this ugly, dark time when there was no king in Israel and everyone did whatever they wanted was the sexual exploitation and murder of two innocent, defenseless women. And we think, surely not in God's house, though. Surely if there's anywhere in Israel women can be safe, it's here. But Hophni and Phinehas saw what they wanted and took it. When people who don't know the Lord, who don't see him as a real factor, who don't fear him as a God who sees and knows and cares, when people like Hophni and Phinehas claim power in God's name. Innocent people get abused. It's an old story. It's meant to disgust us. And it's meant to make us ask, what would their father Eli do about this? Eli was in charge. He was the chief priest over this tabernacle. He was even established as a judge in Israel, a ruler for this people without a king. What would he do when his sons did that? Step two in the story, the apathy of Eli. The apathy of Eli. Pick up with me back again in verse 22, and let's read the next several verses. Now Eli was very old, we're told. He kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. On one level, what Eli says here is better than nothing. He hears what's going on, gets a report, comes back to him about all this, this stuff that's going on in his tabernacle, under his administration. And he does have a talk with his two unruly sons. He asks them what they're doing. And why they're doing it. He calls what they're doing evil. So he's right about that. And he warns them that it's a serious thing to sin against the Lord. To disregard what God has said about God's own house. He's right about that. But we are not meant to cheer him on here. This is not meant to, to show us Eli as a contrast to his sons. It's meant to show him implicated in what his sons were doing. We're meant to see him as a weak leader, as an ineffective father, ultimately as a failure 
in what God had called him to do amongst God's people. I mean, think about it. Why is he just hearing about all this second or third hand, these reports that people are spreading through Israel? Why is he responding to a report already spreading? I mean, a cynical way to read it was that he didn't care about it until it was bad for the family's reputation. That doesn't really suit the picture of Eli we get here. Another explanation would be just that he wasn't around. He wasn't on his post. He wasn't paying attention. And there may be something to that. But I think the most straightforward explanation of why all he's doing is complaining to them is that he cares about them more than he cares about God or God's people. This man is in charge. He's the highest priest. He is a judge in Israel. Why is he only talking to them? How do they still have jobs? This verbal warning amounts to nothing more than a cover-up while he lets them carry on doing whatever they want to do. In a moment, we're going to look at the judgment that God pronounces on Eli and his house. But for now, the thing to notice is that when that time comes, he doesn't, God doesn't just blame Hophni and Phinehas. He blames Eli. Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And here he delivers the blow. Why do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Eli did this thing because he refused to restrain his sons knowing full well what they were doing. Friends, there is a wisdom and a warning for those of us who are parents here, isn't there? I know that's not what this is about primarily and we are in a very different situation than Eli was in. I know that. But do you think that things got to this place overnight? No way. More likely, what we're seeing at this point in this story is a reflection of Eli's approach to his children all along. This is, at best, remote control parenting. He's just whining at them from across the room. He's essentially just shaming them rather than actually disciplining them. Why would you do that? How could you do that? Don't you know better? Didn't I teach you better than that? Oh, friends, this kind of complaining to our kids about our kids is so easy to do when we'd rather not get out of the chair, put down the phone, and talk to them about what's happened. Maybe even teach them through a consequence how important it is that none of us gets to do what's right in their own eyes. And as our children grow, friends, as they get appropriately more independent of us, we have to remember we don't serve our kids. We don't serve them if we honor them above the Lord. This will take us a tremendous wisdom a kind of supernatural wisdom that we ought to be begging for every day before we even feel the need for it. Because we need to be prepared to recognize 
when we're going to be tempted to a kind of kindness that may slip into idolatry. A kindness that cares more about really us and how we're perceived than about God and his glory or our kids and their good. Eli's example here, it's a warning for us that that sometimes we need to worry less about staying on someone's good side, even our kids' good side, than we worry about their actual good before the Lord. And step three shows us why this is so important. Step one was the abuses of Eli's sons and step two, the apathy of Eli leading to step three, the anger of the Lord. The Lord takes sin seriously. This next section of chapter 2 is difficult reading to that end. In verse 27, an unnamed man of God comes to Eli to speak to him on God's behalf. He begins by reminding Eli of all of God's grace to God's people. When they were in Egypt, they had nowhere else to turn. They cried out. They just groaned to the Lord. He heard them and he delivered them. His grace to Eli's ancestors who were made priests so they didn't deserve it. They weren't any any more special than anyone else. God just decided, you will represent me in my house. What a gift. And it builds to basically God saying, how could you after all that grace? And it leads to what comes next in verse 30. Here's what the Lord says to Eli. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house. So that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this is that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house. He shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. I think this pretty much speaks for itself, doesn't it? This is gut-wrenching. But it is justice. Poetic justice. Hophni and Phinehas may not know the Lord, but he sees and knows all. God does not share Eli's apathy when he sees his name used as cover for abuse. Now, friend, maybe you're here today because you want to know more about what Christians believe 
what we follow Jesus for, what it means to, to be part of all of this. So I'm so glad you're here. What a gift to us that you've come. I want to talk to you more about what you're experiencing, what you're hearing. I know this is a lot to take in, and some of it may seem super unfamiliar to you. I, I want to draw your attention, though, to one thing you might have brought in here with you that I think is addressed here in this, in this text. Maybe you've seen enough headlines or even experienced enough on your own to believe that religion is more about humans and their power than God and his goodness or glory. All too often, the reality is religion has been used like that. It has been corrupted. It has been put to use for all sorts of evil. You don't need me to list off examples what I'm talking about. But I hope you can see from this text right here, this passage teaches us how God sees the evil done in his name. And what we believe based on this word is that God sees it all and that God will bring about a justice that may never happen in this life. He is going to set all things right. And that means anybody from anywhere who ever uses his name to hurt his people will give an account to him. They will get what Eli got. He doesn't give a pass even to his own priests. In our experience of the world, we're used to people on the inside getting a pass, you know, at least in the cop shows, you know, in the dramas. If one of the cops is corrupt, his buddies cover for him, even though they're good, because that's just what you do when it's your own people. God's not like that. These priests who bear his name, they will get what they deserve. No one gets a pass with God. His justice is perfect. And in fact, the Bible says that his punishment for abuse committed by those who were given leadership over his people will be even greater because they used his name to cover up all they were doing under the pretense of serving him. This is personal for God. And one day he will set the record straight. The Bible also says, though, that, that this self-centeredness we see that drove the abuses of Hophni and Phinehas, you know, this mentality of, of my way, I'll do it my way, what's right in my eyes, in all sorts of ways, large and small, that's in our hearts too. All of us, the Bible says, like sheep have gone our own way time and again. And before this God whose anger burns against sin, whose justice is perfect. I'm guilty, and you are too. That's what makes the, the promise of verse 35 so important. Did you notice it? In this paragraph full of just brutal judgment, justice against those who committed acts of brutality in God's name. In the middle of this dark text, did you notice the shaft of light? I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he'll go in and out before my anointed forever. There's a lot there that we don't have time to unpack. And I'd love to explain more where I'm coming from, but for now I'm just gonna shoot straight with you and say, when he says he's gonna raise up a faithful priest, the rest of the Bible tells us that priest is Jesus. 
He is talking about Samuel in a way that foreshadows Jesus. He's talking about David in a way that foreshadows Jesus. He's talking about other priests that will come in the line on the way to Jesus. But ultimately, he's talking about his own son that he will send to be a priest like we have never seen before, like this world has never seen. One who only ever did what was in God's mind and heart perfectly. One who brought himself as a sacrifice, not stealing from the sacrifices of God's people, but offering himself, his very blood, as a sacrifice to make them clean. One who entered one time with a sacrifice that only had to be given one time because it was so perfect, so complete, that any sin of anybody who will ever trust in him will be covered, covered by his blood. Hebrews is all about this. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament It specifically says Jesus is the faithful priest in the service of God, as if quoting from this story. And then goes on to say in Hebrews 9, when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not like this one, he entered once for all into the holy places and not by means of the blood of goats and calves, not just bringing symbols of our contrition and of the seriousness of sin, but by means of his own blood given to his father who sent him to give it so that we could be redeemed forever. There is hope in this promise. I'd love to talk to you more about it. But to conclude this morning, we have one more step to take. From the anger of the Lord, our story takes us to finally, point four, the attention of Samuel. The attention of Samuel. One of the most amazing things to me about this whole story is that as real as the Lord's anger is, as justified as his fury against those who abuse his people, as committed as he is to not letting this stand, neither will he let these abuses, neither will he let this apathy in his house be the last word on his relationship to his people. He's committed to raise up a new leader a faithful priest. And by this point in the story, at least in a way that foreshadows Jesus, we know who he's talking about. At every break in the story of Eli's house, the growth of Samuel is mentioned by the author. At the end of the section on the sacrifices and the abuse of God's rules for how those were supposed to go, we're told that the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Then the camera shifts over to Samuel and we're told that he was ministering before the Lord. Eli's sons were told in verse 25 of chapter 2 would not listen to the voice of their father. Then the camera cuts to Samuel. The young man Samuel, he continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Then judgment is pronounced over Eli's house, the last part of chapter 2. The Lord said one day he's going to raise up a faithful priest. That's verse 35. And then chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. You see what he's doing? You see the technique in this storytelling? As Eli's house crumbles, Samuel is rising up. God's already at work behind the scenes. He's already raising his faithful priest. Samuel is like a loaf of bread in the oven rising up until it's ready. And we're meant to be asking by this point in the story, what will be different about him? What makes this faithful priest faithful? Why will his administration 
at God's house be different than Eli's? And it comes down to two things that are pictured in this story in chapter 3. Samuel's attention to the word of the Lord and Samuel's willingness to obey no matter what. Verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us that the word of the Lord, Lord was rare in those days and who could blame him the way his word had been treated? Would you keep on speaking if nobody was paying attention? But the Lord is relentless. He's going to keep speaking still. Verse 2 takes us into the temple on just one ordinary night. Eli lying down in his place, an old man whose eyesight had grown, had grown dim. And Samuel in his place in the room where the ark of the Lord was kept. Samuel lying down hears a voice. The voice of the Lord calling to him. Verse 4. And he says, here I am. And runs to Eli. He thinks it's Eli. Here I am. You called me. But Eli said, I didn't call. Lie down again. Verse 6. The Lord calls him again. Samuel. And he arises again. He goes to Eli again. Here I am. You called me. Eli's answer is the same. I didn't call you. Lie down again. See, verse 7 says, Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. Not yet. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. So the Lord calls Samuel again a third time. Verse 8. And Samuel gets up again, goes to Eli again. And he says, here I am. You called me. And Eli then gets it. He perceives that it is the Lord who's calling the boy. Verse 8. So he tells Samuel, go, lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord. For your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood calling as at other times. Samuel, Samuel, just as he had once called Moses, Moses. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Do you see what's happening? What would be different about Samuel? This story, in its own way, is a picture. When God speaks, Samuel listens. He cranes his ear for the word. He's paying attention. But there's another layer to what will make Samuel different, and it comes out in these next verses. Not just his attention to God's word, but his willingness to obey, no matter what. Pick back up with me in verse 11. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I'll fulfill against Eli all that I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he didn't restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That is some kind of word to get from God the first time you hear him speak. Put yourself in Samuel's shoes. He's sleeping with an earshot of his mentor and boss. And he's told what's about to happen to this man that he loves and depends on. What's more, this is not the sort of family you want to mess with. We already know what Hophni and Phinehas were up to. Eli seems nice enough, but he's clearly a pushover. What if those guys, Hophni and Phinehas, who would have been in the tabernacle likely at this time, what if they heard 
what Samuel had been told by the Lord. What do you think would be right in their eyes if they heard that the Lord said their house was about to end and the implication, you are about to rise up? I mean, just Google what happened to any, basically anybody in line for the British or the English throne back in the medieval times as a kid. Those kids' heads roll. They'll stick a meat fork into Samuel if they find out what's going on behind their backs. It's no wonder that Samuel doesn't get back to sleep after this. Verse, seven, verse 15 says, he lay until morning, just thinking about it, turning it over. What am I going to do? And then he opens the doors of the house of the Lord, and we're told he's afraid. Afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Of course he would be. I would be too. But when Eli calls him and tells him to tell it all, what does Samuel do? Knowing this word might cost him. Knowing he'd rather be just about anywhere than here doing anything but this. What does he do with this word of the Lord? Verse 18. Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. What would make Samuel different? What was new about this new thing the Lord was doing in Israel in a dark time when his word was rare and not even the priests knew the Lord? What was new is that the Lord would now speak through Samuel. Samuel would hear. Samuel would obey. The dividing line between those who know God and those who don't is the line between receiving his word and ignoring it, receiving his word and embracing it. So two questions for you. How attentive are we to the word God has given us? And the point of this story, how precious it is to hear from God, is one reason we want the Bible to be so important to our life together as a church. Hopefully you've noticed that even this morning. We've read from it, we've sung from it, we've prayed from it, we've just spent a lot of time opening up this one section in it. And what we do here on Sunday mornings is just the tip of the iceberg to where this word factors into our life together. It's in our small groups, it's in our classes for kids, our classes for adults, and Bible studies that are happening, and in our relationships, our friendships with one another. Lord willing, more and more and more as we continue to know each other. This right here is why we focus so much of our international outreach on places that don't have access to the gospel. Places that are known as unreached. They don't even know that the Lord has spoken about Jesus. How could they respond to him without that word? We want to get it to them. But what about you? Where does the word of God fit into your life? I mean, thank, thank God the word of God is not rare for us. Not here. Not, it's everywhere. You've got it within arm's reach on the back of the pew in front of you. You can get it on your phone. You can have it read to you by your phone if you want to as you drive to work. But as one, one friend put it, there, there's more than one way to starve. You can starve for lack of access, or you can starve for lack of appetite. The question for us in seeing this story, hearing this story, is not when can I expect my voice in the night like Samuel got, but how interested am I in what God has spoken already through the Bible? Our interest, our attention to this book is going to be a clear sign to us of how important it is for us to know God. How is your appetite? And if it's not great, let me, we, we want to help you with that. If you can see, oh, it's not great. I, 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 I wish I wanted it more, but I don't. You know, one of the best things you can possibly do is ask a friend to read the Bible with you. 
They will say yes, and it will help you, and it will help them. And I'd be happy to help connect you to somebody if you're interested. Here's a second question for you. How willing are we to obey when we'd rather not? Do you realize that this is a key test for us in our relationship to God, to whether we know him or not? How we react when his word is hard to hear or hard to embrace? Sometimes what he says will be hard for us because it won't sit well with our intuitions, with what seems right to us, our ideas about how things ought to be. Sometimes his word won't sit well because obeying it will cost us a lot. Sometimes his word won't sit well because it'll cost us not a lot of effort, but as with Samuel here, it may cost us with people, people that we care about, people that we want to please, people that we want to think well of us. And when we run up against God's word like this, we're always going to be tempted to round off those rough edges, to shave it, to reshape it according to what seems best to us. But if you want to know God, if you want to know him, like any other relationship, it depends on him being able to be different from you. Him being able to contradict you through what he says and your willingness to hear him as he is, not as you wish that he were. That's fundamental to knowing anyone, including the God who made us and has spoken to us through his word. And maybe you're thinking, how can I do that though? I mean, I've read enough of this to know this is not an easy word to take in. You need to remember the opening line of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. What that means is that God has gone as far as he had to go to make himself known to us. He spoke through the world that he made. He spoke through the laws that he gave to his people. He spoke through prophets like Samuel, one after another, over and over again. His people don't listen. So what does God do? I'll tell you what I do. I'd stop wasting my breath. I'd start over. God sends his son, his own and only son, the exact imprint of who he is, the radiance of his glory, the final word on all of it. Friends, if God feels distant for you, it's not because he's playing hard to get. Look what he's done to be knowable for you. And if you're thinking, well, if I was God and I was speaking to me, I'd say something like he said to Eli, I know what I deserve. Then you need to know God has spoken in these last days through his son. What does he say through Jesus? If you boil the whole letter of Hebrews down, he says this, I forgive you. I've done everything necessary to forgive you. You can know me without fear. And yeah, this God who speaks through Jesus still says things that we may not like. But every word that comes to him, comes from him, comes through Jesus. It is Jesus who says yes and no. Jesus who says you may come this far, but no further. It is Jesus, not the voice of a slave driver, but the voice of a shepherd, a good shepherd, one who laid down his life for his sheep. Who wouldn't crane to hear what Jesus has to say? There's safety in these words. There is good pasture to feed and nourish your soul in these words. There is life, eternal life in his words. Who wouldn't long to hear from Jesus? Do you? 
Let's pray. Oh, Father, give us ears to hear what you've spoken to us and hearts willing to obey you. For your name's sake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.